Well, good morning. Um, to let you know, too, Mark is a big kid. So, and to let you know, too, um, this morning we kicked off the juniors and kingdom kids. So now we have a special classroom that for twos and threes. So, which is really nice because that's sort of an awkward age to be in the nursery. So my wife, Kim, who's a, the children's director here, opened it up this morning. So it's, we call it a soft opening but now I'm announcing it, I guess it's a public opening. So, <laughs> But anyway, that's what's going on out there today. It's more of a carnival kind of thing for them. They're going to have a great time. Um, the first announcement I had, I just wanted to thank you. It's a praise report for last Sunday. Um, it was such an amazing time at Soul Park with all the churches coming together. I mean, it was I mean, amazing because we are one body in Christ in this valley. So, you know, no matter what church you go to, it's just we have the same love for Jesus. So it was such a great time. And to let you know, it's on my heart and the other church's heart as well, is to do things like that more often. Because we're called to be together as a body of believers and to minister to this valley. So we're going to be doing a praise and worship night. We're going to do projects in the valley together. So um, I'm looking forward to it coming up and announcing the other events that might be coming up very soon. So very happy with that. So thank you for who came out on last Sunday. We had like 400 people. So it was amazing. So, and we're going to be doing it again very soon. Um, Christine has women's announcements. All right, good morning. I'm here to talk about, oh, good morning. (laughs) Didn't let you say good morning. I'm here to talk about um, the two workshops that are coming up this summer. We have a cooking workshop, which is in two weeks, Saturday, July 22nd at 10 a.m. And all the workshops are going to be in the commons. And this workshop is $15. And I talked about it two weeks ago that the first thing we're going to do is um, learn to make breakfast sandwiches, kind of like the ones at McDonald's or Starbucks, but a lot cheaper, a lot more delicious. We're talking bacon. So anything that has bacon is, has to be good. So, um, yes. <laughs> so I'll be teaching you how to make those. It takes less than an hour to make a dozen, and then you have them for the next two weeks, or the next week and a half, or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to teach you that, and then we're going to do, do a salad, and then we're going to learn to make a dessert that is so easy that you can memorize the recipe. It's going to be um, something that you can make with ingredients that are in your house. So if you have someone coming over in an hour, you can make this dessert um, very easily. So we're going to do that, and... Um, the sign-ups are out there. We are over halfway full, so we have about eight spots left. And when you sign up your name, you can give me or Eileen the money, and that will secure your spot. Your spot isn't secured until you um, pay. So, so yeah, so go ahead and sign up because that is going quickly. And I mentioned last week that, or two weeks ago that it's a really great place to bring your non-Christian friends. It's a little bit less threatening and It's a lot of fun, and it's a great way to introduce them to church, introduce them to the well. So um, that is in two weeks. And then next month is a card-making workshop that I'm also going to teach, and I'll talk to you about that um, next month. So um, if you have any questions, I'll be here after church, and I'll be outside at the sign-up, and you can um, sign up and pay and ask any questions you would like. All right, thank you. Good morning, church. Make sure we get us all in the right spot. Are we queued up? Are we in the middle? Are we where we should be here? Good deal. All right. Always a privilege to be able to deliver God's word 
to the church family. Favorite thing to do, favorite place to be. Uh, hope you all were able to pick up a sermon note, study note. There were two pages out there. Uh, True or false is the name of today's or title of today's message. And basically today is an expository message. We'll focus on the truth and inerrancy of God's word, the scriptures, the Bible, um, how the saved follower of Jesus can navigate a world saturated by false teaching and false doctrine. Uh, First, let me provide some definition regarding what I just referred to as expository message or preaching. What I mean by that is it's biblical preaching, biblical. Preaching that's rooted and grounded in the word of God. It starts with the text of scripture. Therefore, it starts with the Bible. Therefore, it starts with God. So the real preacher and expository preaching isn't me or any man that would fill this pulpit. It's God himself through his word of truth. And this is his word of truth. That's the message today. The authority of God's word of truth. To simplify even further, expository preaching is letting scripture talk. Read the scripture, teach or explain the scripture, then exhort, apply it to one's life today with the scripture. So let me provide an example. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, it says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Now, if I just left it there and I didn't provide any context there was a time in my walk that would have been a little bit difficult to really understand what was going on. But if I give you just a little context and say after being freed from his first Roman incarceration, the Apostle Paul revisited numerous cities which he had ministered to, including Ephesus, leaving Timothy behind as the elder slash pastor to deal with problems that had arisen in the Ephesian church, like false doctrine, chaos and worship, the need for qualified elders slash pastors, and materialism. Paul went on to Macedonia where he wrote Timothy this letter to help him carry out his mission in the church. The book of 1 Timothy is the first of two inspired letters or epistles that Paul wrote to his quote-unquote beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul wrote 1 Timothy and Titus shortly after his release from his first Roman imprisonment, somewhere between AD 62 and 64. He wrote 2 Timothy from prison during his second Roman imprisonment, uh, somewhere around 67, 66 or 67. So Paul had regularly sent Timothy and his rep- as his representative. At the time of this letter, Timothy is the elder slash pastor of the churches in and around Ephesus. Give us some context. First Timothy is a letter covering pastoral instruction from Paul to Timothy. Since Timothy had knowledge of Paul's theology, the apostle had no need to give him extensive doctrinal instruction. This epistle does, however, express many important theological truths such as the proper function of law, salvation, the attributes of God, the fall, the person of Christ, election, and the second coming of Christ. So let's look at it again. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. 
This was important for the elder slash pastor of Ephesus. Everywhere Paul visited and instructed, and for us today. Let's break it down a little bit. Reading refers to the tradition of public reading of Scripture in the church service, followed by the exposition or the explanation of the passage that had been read. Now, without digging into that at all, I'm going to read that Scripture and think, pay attention to reading. Well, they're just reading the Scriptures in, in church, much like we do. We would open God's Word. We would read the Scripture. Pay attention to it. Exhortation is to hear God's word and give application to the daily lives of those in the church. So his responsibility, as they read the scripture, is to deal with the current status of the flock. Teach them, apply it to their lives. The exhortation, it may be a conviction, may contain rebuke, could be a warning. It may also be encouraging, or a comfort, any given one of those in the flock. So in your study notes, some questions we had, one of the first questions here is, and many of you may know the answer, but for those that may not, we're going to cover it. What is biblical or sound doctrine? We hear that a lot. We hear that a lot. And if we haven't dug into it, asked questions, studied up on it, maybe we're not quite clear on what that is. But simply... Sound doctrine is preaching or teachings that align with the revered, revealed word of God, the Bible. It's in here. That is sound doctrine. This is sound doctrine. The following scriptures are examples in scripture of sound doctrine. Let's look at Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I, Jesus, will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father, God, and before his angels. That's sound doctrine. That's a promise. He or she who overcomes, all who have verbally acknowledged Jesus as Lord of their lives, believing, committing to him, he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, past, present, and future. We believe that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to heaven and sits today at the right hand of the heavenly Father. That's what believers believe. We believe his word. We believe his scripture. We believe this Bible. Everything that we know about Christ, if it didn't come orally through communication with someone, they received it from here. This is where we get all of it. When he comes as we commit to him in his Holy Spirit to live within us, that resource is even more tremendous, more personal. We have his resource in us. The book of life that was referred to a divine journal that records the names of all those who God has chosen to save and who by his grace of God will possess eternal life. Is your name written? Is your name written in that book? That's all it is. Where it says, I will confess his, and we'll just throw in or her, 
name before my Father God and before his angels. You see, without an abiding relationship with Jesus, abiding by his word, we're separated from God. Jesus will proclaim our justification to his Father and his angels. We inherit Jesus' righteousness. We'll spend eternity with him. You see, without Jesus, all of us were, were conceived and born in sin. We need a savior. Even his mother Mary needed a savior. Thinking of the movies and the illustrations you'd see, one passes and we end up at the pearly gates, however it is, the, however it is that transpires. We show up and somebody inevitably is gonna say, who are you? Maybe God himself. Jesus steps in on behalf of the believer and says, Father, he or she's with me. They're mine. Oh, welcome. Come in. Let's take a look at John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, Simon Peter, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uncomfortable as that may be for some to hear, it's the truth. That's the truth we speak of. Uh, the second paper that I gave you, uh, the statement of faith, if you will, of this church, just wanted to kind of bring that as a resource into your life, but um, it's the scriptures is titled, and I didn't have them in any particular order. We're not gonna cover all of them. We're not gonna cover half of them, but I've got them as an illustration to several things that we're gonna speak of today as a reference. It's one of eight specific tenets defined in the statement of faith of this church. Each specific is supported 100% by scripture. That's its intent. These position statements can and have been easily found on our church's website for many years. They haven't been hidden or kept a secret. They're out there. I highly recommend any and all that, that choose of their free will to hear the truth at this church, to avail yourselves of that information. In that document under the scriptures, it says we... That's the elders of the Ohio Valley Christian Fellowship believe the Bible comprised of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments to be the verbally inspired word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible and God-breathed. Let me give a series of scripture. Very, very important. Everything that we believe and we promote from this pulpit is backed by scripture. And we want you to know and be able to study what that is. The first scripture reference there is for 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. So kind of funny, our Tuesday night Bible study group, this is kind of our home scripture. Not every week do we refer to this, but frequently as we study God's word, we will start with referencing 2 Timothy 3, 16. Because it reads all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the basis that we want to start from, that this is the authority. 
This is the authority of God's word. And where it says all, that even translates in the Greek, all, all scripture. So all scripture, grammatically, uh, constructions, um, Greek constructions uh, argue convincively that the translation, all scripture is given by inspiration, is accurate. That's exactly what it means. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures are included, all backed by scripture. Given by inspiration of God, breathed out by God, or God breathed. Sometimes God told the Bible writers the exact words to say, but more often he used their minds, vocabularies, and experiences to produce his own perfect, infallible, inerrant word. The scriptures were written by men but they were God-breathed into them to use their words, their vocabularies, so forth and so on. It's important to note that inspiration applies only to the original manuscripts of Scripture, not the Bible writers. There are no inspired Scripture writers, only inspired Scripture. And I say that because as time has gone on, you may note that there are a number of different translations of God's Word may or may not be inspired by God. Someone changes something, right? The original manuscripts, original, that's where the canon came from, was the original manuscripts. So, I, so identified as God with his word that when scripture speaks, literally God speaks. Scripture is God speaking. It cannot be altered. Defining doctrine from that text, the divine instruction or doctrinal content of both the Old Testament and New Testament Scripture provides the complete and whole body of divine truth necessary for life and godliness. The reproof is rebuke for wrong conduct or wrong belief. Scripture exposes sin. It can then be dealt with through confession and repentance. Repentance being a requirement of salvation. I believe in the Father. I believe in Jesus. I commit is what that translates to in the Greek. I can't commit if I understand the sin in my life I've not repented from. Correction from that verse in 2 Timothy. The restoration of something to its proper condition. Scripture is not only rebukes wrong behavior, it also points the way back to godly living. It doesn't just leave you hanging. It doesn't just say, you're wrong, you're a sinner. Scripture takes us all back to godly living shows a path out, path of escape. Instruction in righteousness. Scripture delivers positive training in godly behavior, not mere rebuke or correction of wrong behavior. What is expository preaching? It's preaching that's rooted and grounded in the word of God. When can a doctrine be considered truly biblical? Again, this may seem quite simple at this point, but doctrine can only be considered truly biblical when it's clearly taught in the Bible. That's doctrinal teaching. That's the only place you can find it. What's false biblical doctrine? You may be ahead of me on this one. False biblical doctrine is any preaching or teaching or idea that adds to, takes away from, contradicts or nullifies the doctrine clearly given in God's word. I put a reference at the bottom of your uh, study notes there for a cultural research center at Arizona Christian University located in Glendale, Arizona. 
I wanted you to have that so when you leave here, I'm not endorsing them, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting some statistics from one survey that they authored. Uh, I did due diligence and go to their website and look at a pretty sound bunch and they've done, uh, dug into statistics among believers and non-believers nationwide for a long, long time. So in the spirit of being in the light and the sunshine, I wanted you to know where I got this material so you could go check it out as well. But in this recent, uh, in this recent poll that they did, and they, it's always interesting when they say a sample nationwide. Did they talk to 100 people at one college campus somewhere, and then they've attributed this to this is what the whole country's like? They've talked to over 5,000 people responded to this nationwide. Some 69% of respondents claim to be of the Christian faith. And again, over 5,000 surveyed. So they reported the group reported that that reflects approximately 176 million 18 years of age or older Americans. It's not young children that may be believers, but just the 18 and older crowd. So if that's accurate, praise the Lord. But if I'm honest, I'm skeptical of that figure, plus or minus any margins of error. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I don't know if the 69% of respondents are, uh, it's clearly all denominations, walks of life. If you just bought a Christmas tree, they think they're a Christian. I don't know, but it's a, it's a big number, right? So where are the respondents overall in the affirmative of Christian faith? Only... Only 35%, as they narrow it down, or about 89 million adult Americans would identify as born-again slash evangelical Christians. So they asked the question independently of both, but the combination and understanding that some believe that are, are in both camps, similar language, 35% or about half of the respondents would claim to be born-again evangelical Christians. Well, that cuts the number nearly in half. Uh, as scripture and sound doctrine clearly state, being born again is required to see the kingdom of God. So you've got 69% of Americans, 176 million or whatever it was, believing that they're Christians, may believe they're saved, I don't know. But half of that is born again in scripture, God's truth tells us that that's a requirement. Let's look at John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered and said to him, this is Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Supreme Court of Israel in that time. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin men that were drawn geographically from around Judea. There was one chief priest who we know is Caiaphas. So there was 70 plus the 171. And Nicodemus was actually from Jesus' hometown. Probably knew each other. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But we know he was from Galilee. And we know that they probably knew each other. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of night away from the other Pharisees and leaders of the church to ask him these questions. And this is what, that's what Jesus tells him. Most assuredly, the truth. You can't, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So let's take a quick peek 
again at the church's statement of faith under salvation. We, the Ojai Valley Christian Fellowship elders, believe that salvation is the gift of God, brought to man by grace and received by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose precious blood was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' death on the cross provided a penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of humanity. In salvation, we are rescued from God's wrath and his unmerited, by his unmerited grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Again, we note four different areas of Scripture, small sampling of the Scripture that supports that statement of faith. You may have neighbors, friends, people. Where do you go to church? Oh, I go to the well in Ojai. Well, what do they believe? This is a sampling of what we believe. This is a way to arm yourselves, study these scriptures, get on board with being able to communicate your, your position of belief. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the segments that supports that statement. In that same survey, those Americans identified as born-again evangelical Christians represented about 89 million Americans. I think the current estimates of America's population, not knowing what the adult number is, but it's somewhere around 125 to 100, or sorry, 325 to 340 million people in the country. So that's still a pretty good sampling of folks being in that. Only 60% believe that the Bible is the accurate and reliable words of God. Only 60% of that 89 million claiming to be evangelical born-again Christians. That's 40% that do not. These are victims of false teaching. Plain and simple. Victims of false teaching. This is the truth. Anything that contradicts this and is not in here is false. The survey asked the self-identified born-again evangelical Christian respondents to agree or disagree with the following statements. Agree or disagree. Question. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect and just creator of the universe who rules today. 31%, 28 million would disagree. That's of the self-proclaimed born-again evangelical believer. So to be fair, we have to consider any number of those six claims in that statement uh, that, that put forth in the statement also why respondents may have disagreed. Could have just been one. So let's look at them. God is all-powerful. If we go to the word of truth, Luke 1 and verse 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Well, there's God's word. I don't need to break that down. We all understand what that means. He's all-powerful. If nothing is impossible for the creator of the universe, he's all-powerful. That seems to define all-powerful. Number two, God is all-knowing. Now let's look at Psalm 139.4. 
For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you knew it altogether. He knows everything. We spoke the men this morning out on the patio. I think we were talking about the solar system and the stars. He has a name for every one of them. He knows every, he knows every hair on your head. He's, he's all-knowing. Of course he's all-knowing. Again, rooted in truth in his word. Number three, God is perfect. If we look at Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Our Father in heaven is perfect. It tells us in scripture in here. This is what the believer believes. This is the authority in the believer's life. Number four, God is just. We look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all would be saved. Repentance of our sin is a fruit production of being born again. The old us has passed and the new has been born. That's it. God is just. Scripture tells us right there. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to faith in him. Number five, God is the creator of the universe. If you're a Bible reader starting at the beginning, you don't get beyond Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Case closed on number five. Number six, God rules the universe today. We look at Colossians chapter one and verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That word consist translates in the Greek to hold together. If God wasn't holding it together, we would all know. What does our statement of faith have to say on the subject? Look at the Godhead. We believe there is but one living and true God, an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. And we give a myriad of scripture to support that. This statement of faith and that section on the Godhead and all of these, this isn't new. This has been published and out for, for many, many years. This survey asking that question of these respondents, not so much. It's, it's relatively current, last uh, couple of years. So the 89 million born-again evangelicals agree or disagree. A person who is genu- generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. Of that 89 million born-again evangelicals self-proclaimed, 61%, 61 agree that if you do enough good generally, you'll earn a place in heaven. This is a byproduct of false teaching, folks. This is not coming from Scripture. There's 27 books in the New Testament 26 of them warn of false teachers. Sounds like that's important to our Father. 
He's included it in 27, 26 of the 27 books. Um, I believe Philemon in its 25 verses is the only book in the New Testament that does not mention false teaching. What do we believe regarding the person and work of Christ? We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man without ceasing to be God. Having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, in order that he might reveal God and redeem sinful man. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as representative vicarious substitutionary sacrifice and that our justification is made sure by his literal physical resurrection from the dead We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of God, whereas our high priest, he fulfills the ministry as representative, intercessor, and advocate. We believe Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We pack a lot of scripture in there for that one to digest. I encourage you all, encourage you to go through this Go to each scripture, refer back to the text. That's what we believe here. And as you're in covenant with this church, I'll take this moment. I don't know that we've ever talked about the covenant brochure that we've got on the welcome card from the pulpit. But we've got a, we've published such a trifold thing. I encourage you to pick one up on your way out. Just what being in covenant with this body of believers uh, means. The Bible predicts Jesus' return. That's what you just heard at the end of that statement. According to the Bible, Christ will return to defeat Satan and begin his thousand-year reign on earth at the end of the tribulation. He'll make right all the wrongs of the world. You may be surprised to learn that references to the second coming, biblically, outnumber references to Jesus' first coming by a factor of eight to one. He's coming. Scholars have identified 1,845 different Bible references to the second coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, no less than 17 books mention his return. Old Testament. New Testament authors speak of it in 23 of the 27 books. Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament refer to his return. In other words, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament teaches us that Jesus Christ is coming back to rule this earth. That's a lot. The whole world will witness Jesus' return. God wants us to be prepared and understand his truth. That's our purpose As a church family, we come together as believers. We serve one another. We serve the community. We serve the world, showing all his love and his righteousness. That's what we do. In Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed them for. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me 
in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. End of the church age. So 11 went to Galilee as Jesus is instructed, but more than that, because remember, it was kind of an entourage. I believe maybe the 70, it wasn't just the 11 disciples. I think there was the group. So we don't know if the, those that doubted uh, may still have been Thomas, may have been others, but Jesus cleaned it up for them. Absolute sovereign, sovereign authority. Lordship over all is handed to Jesus in heaven and on earth. This is clear proof of his deity. Go, therefore, from verse 19, on the foundation of his, Jesus' authority, the disciples, you and I, were sent to make disciples of all nations. The sweeping scope of our commission is clear. With his unlimited authority in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mission trips. A number of you just went on a mission trip. Mark led a trip down to Mexico. The purpose of the mission trip isn't to, isn't to leave a house behind for a family. That's not it at all. It's to demonstrate that people that love the Lord and this commission gave to the purpose, went down and worked for the purpose, and showed the love of Christ to not just this family, but others in the surrounding area. That was the purpose. The purpose isn't the house at all. It's a byproduct of the commission. But to go and show Christ's love in oneself to another is the purpose of the commission. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The level of evangelism, hmm, it doesn't end with the conversation of the believer. We don't support just having someone say, I want to know more about Jesus. Like, that sounds good. I'm in. I said the prayer. Great. Pat him on the back. See you in eternity. There's a follow-up. The scripture clearly says, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded of you. It's teaching. We have Bible studies, men's studies, women's studies, couple studies. We teach the word. We teach the word of God. If you're hungry to know more, you can do a lot on your own, studying verses, study Bibles, dictionaries, various things. Get together with fellow believers in a study. Ask questions. You can ask questions of the elders, or you can ask questions of anybody, but study the Word. There's 27 books in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is credited with having written at least 13 of them. Half. 26 of the 27 books of the New Testament include warning about the false prophets. I believe God himself must find this subject very important. God commands his disciples, you and me, we are disciples. Disciples simply means we follow Christ. We've committed to him. So we're disciples. To test his word. We're to test his word. Let's look at 1 John 4.1. Beloved, again, that's you and me. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This was so prolific in this time of the early church, I would concur it's no less horrific today. So how do we test the spirits? How do we test the message? How do we test this message? By the truthful word of God himself. Scripture, the Bible. This is the authority of all things that we hear. Because he's coming back and those who have rejected him and his truth will spend eternity separated from him. That's harsh to hear. That's hell. He's not in hell. And if you're not with him, that's where we go. There's two ways to be deceived. One is to believe what is not true. The other is to refuse to believe what is true. This is true. Now we'll get real. Many of you in the faces I see, many of you that are joining us live stream will watch this sooner, uh, sooner or later. Um, you're believers, you're, you're followers, you're disciples of Christ. I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been putting on your heart during this message, but brothers and sisters, it's serious. This is what we do. We gather here so that we can grow his kingdom. It isn't about us, and it isn't about anybody that stands up here and delivers his message that preaches his word. It's about him. It's about the free gift that he offers that one just needs to receive. Is it easy to receive? No, you have to do some self-reflection. You have to look at sin in your life. What's sin in your life? Sin's identified in here. If you have questions, we're happy to answer. But don't let it go. That's what it's all about. We have to call on him. For those of you that have lived many years, decades, as I look at some of you as believers in Christ, this is the way of your life. I know and have spoken to so many of you that your day begins with this, your day progresses with this, and your day ends with this. Every day, it's the word of God. I love to hear those stories. I know in my own life and my own walk, things have gotten that way today, but it's been a progression of sanctification. I haven't always been a consumer of God's word morning, noon, and night, but I can tell you I am today. Nothing the matter with progression and sanctification. We're all in a different place. But if you're a believer in Christ, this is the authority of your life. This is the authority, period. If you have never asked Christ to come into your life, come into your heart as Lord and Savior, surrendered yourself of you being God and said, Lord, I'm finished. It's all about you. I want to ask you to come into my life. Did you know knowledge of this book and what's in here is completely non-needed? Is that a word? Is that in Scrabble? I don't think so. Not needed. You don't need to know what's in here. You just have to have faith that it's the truth. If you have faith in Christ, you have faith that this book in its entirety is his truth. Period. You don't need to know the content. You're starting a journey in a relationship with the Father where you can learn these things yourself, grow, ask questions, test, all of it. That's not a prerequisite to have biblical knowledge. It's a prerequisite to have faith in Christ. 
and turn your life over and surrender to him. Study what sin's going on in your life. I find uh, in, in recent years, in the last five years, I've discovered areas that I was ignorant of in my own life, of my thoughts and judgments and things. It never ends. That's why we study the same book, 66 books, 66 chapters, whatever, for thousands of years because we get out of something different each time. So if you've never done that, there's no special uh, prayer that I would say that you would follow along. Brothers and sisters, it's simple. You call on him as Lord and Savior. You recognize he sent his son to die for our sins. You recognize his son died as he said he would and would rise again on the third day. He ascended to the Father and sits at his right hand today. You acknowledge you're a sinner. You investigate your sin and you repent. He immediately enters your life as Lord and Savior. That's it. That's the easy button on the surface. It's the difficult button in here because your heart needs to be right. But that's just how simple it is. So I'm not gonna lead a prayer concerning that because it's irrelevant what I say. You can have done that just as I described it in your seat, online. We throw them a curb back there. We got a prayer email. We got that we can throw on there. Oh, they're quick back there. Okay, those of you that are at home, those of you that are here, by all means, let us know where you're at with that. If you have any questions, we would love to pray for you, pray with you, help you with that. That's what we do. We're growing his kingdom. That's the entire purpose of gathering here. We're about to take communion as a church family. This is for the believer. It's one of two ordinances in his church. Baptism, which is the public profession that you are saved and the old has been buried in submersion and raised in the new. And then we take communion together. Christ asked us to do this in remembrance of him. He didn't specify a period of time, once a year, twice a year, every full moon. We do it every week. We gather every week, and as a church family, and you can join us at home, we take communion. We remember him. We remember what he's done. We remember his word, every bit of it inspired by him. His word, his truth. So please come forward, take communion in remembrance of him. Well, good morning. Um, to let you know, too, Mark is a big kid. So, and to let you know, too, um, this morning we kicked off the juniors and kingdom kids. So now we have a special classroom that for twos and threes. So, which is really nice, because that's sort of an awkward age to be in the nursery. So my wife, Kim, who's a, the children's director here, opened it up this morning. So it's, we call it a soft opening, but now I'm announcing it. I guess it's a public opening. So, <laughs> But anyway, that's what's going on out there today. It's more of a carnival kind of thing for them. They're going to have a great time. Um, the first announcement I have, I just wanted to thank you. It's a praise report for last Sunday. Um, it was such an amazing time at Soul Park with all the churches coming together. I mean, it was, I mean, amazing. Because we are one body in Christ in this valley. 
So, you know, not, no matter what church you go to, it's just we have the same love for Jesus. So it was such a great time. And let you know it's on my heart and the other church's heart as well is to do things like that more often. Because we're called to be together as a body of believers and to minister to this valley. So we're going to be doing a praise and worship night. We're going to do projects in the valley together. So um, I'm looking forward to it coming up and announcing the other events that might be coming up very soon. So very happy with that. So thank you for who came out on last Sunday. We had like 400 people. So it was amazing. So And we're going to be doing it again very soon. Um, Christine has women's announcements. All right, good morning. I'm here to talk about, oh, good morning. Didn't let you say good morning. I'm here to talk about um, the two workshops that are coming up this summer. We have a cooking workshop, which is in two weeks, Saturday, July 22nd at 10 a.m. And all the workshops are going to be in the commons. And this workshop is $15. And I talked about it two weeks ago that the first thing we're going to do is... um, learn to make breakfast sandwiches, kind of like the ones at McDonald's or Starbucks, but a lot cheaper, a lot more delicious. We're talking bacon. So anything that has bacon is, has to be good. So, um, yes. <laughs> so I'll be teaching you how to make those. It takes less than an hour to make a dozen, and then you have them for the next two weeks, or the next week and a half, or whatever. So, um, so, yeah, I'm going to teach you that, and then we're going to do, do a salad, and then we're going to learn to make a dessert that is so easy that you can memorize the recipe. It's going to be um, something that you can make with ingredients that are in your house. So if you have someone coming over in an hour, you can make this dessert um, very easily. So we're going to do that. And um, the sign-ups are out there. We are over halfway full, so we have about eight spots left. And when you sign up your name, you can give me or Eileen the money, and that will secure your spot. Your spot isn't secured until you um, pay. So, so yeah, so go ahead and sign up because that is going quickly. And I mentioned last week that, or two weeks ago, that it's a really great place to bring your non-Christian friends. It's a little bit less threatening, and it's a lot of fun. And it's a great way to introduce them to church, introduce them to the well. So um, that is in two weeks. And then next month is a card-making workshop that I'm also going to teach, and I'll talk to you about that um, next month. So um, if you have any questions, I'll be here after church, and I'll be outside at the sign-up, and you can um, sign up and pay and ask any questions you would like. All right, thank you.